Hello and welcome to this episode where we are going to discuss another fun topic about this spiritual life that we are pursuing. Today's topic is cooperating with God. Um, the last couple uh, episodes, we've discussed the idea of communion with God, which is more of a, a being-oriented, a less activity-oriented thing, although you can be active while doing that. But today, we're really going to get into a more active description of what being a part of the life of God and the life of the Spirit is like. So I'm using, again, Evelyn Underhill's book for spiritual talks on the spiritual life. Um, and I want to begin, I'm actually going to read a lot of quotes from this just because she says it so well. But let's just begin with this, this one idea that we are not called to be passive, that we actually have something to do in this life with God. So let me read a little bit of this quote. What does cooperation mean? It means that we will not live up to our call as spiritual creatures unless we are willing to pull our weight. The theological axiom that, quote, man's will and God's grace rise and fall together must be translated into practical terms and given practical effect. More is required of those who wake up to reality than the passive adoration of God or intimate communion with God. Those responses, great as they are, do not cover the purpose for our creation. The riches and beauty of the spiritual landscape are not disclosed to us in order that we may sit in the sun parlor, be grateful for the excellent hospitality, and contemplate the glorious view. Some people suppose that the spiritual life mainly consists in doing that. God provides the spectacle, we gaze with reverent appreciation from our comfortable seats and call this proceeding worship. No idea of our situation could be more mistaken than this. I love this. She goes on to say or describe us as part of God's, quote, creative apparatus. In other words, it's not simply that we are sort of watching God doing things. It's not just or, or either that we are helping God, but we are part of what God is creating. We are part of this whole process. We are not spectators. Uh, we're not sitting in the seats. We are on the field. We're on the stage. We are in it. And to live a spiritual life is to accept that God absolutely has a purpose for my life, and I will probably spend my whole life, at least the first half of my life, trying to discover what on earth that is. And what's crazy is, I have no idea. Half the time, I think, I have no idea how I am uh, adding to what God is doing, other than the fact that I am intending to be a part of what God is doing. Sometimes, I might simply be an unwitting tool. Uh, Evelyn Underhill says that sometimes, we're, it seems like people are almost treated like currency in what God is doing, like traded or used this way or that or treated like servants, sometimes we get to feel like a real fellow worker. But it kind of doesn't matter in the big picture because in reality, we're all a part of it. And our approach to cooperating with God has to be this kind of attitude. And even what she calls the attitude of the workshop versus an amateur. And I thought this was such an interesting thing to think about in our age and in our society where Christianity kind of just became such a huge part of the culture. And so we have this sort of leftover or lingering cultural aspect, cultural Christianity, where basically a lot of people could call themselves Christians. Um, 
who didn't really approach the spiritual life with a kind of workshop or professional kind of attitude, like, this is who I am, this is what I do. It was more of like a hobby. And maybe that's still the case today. It's kind of like the God thing is on the side and it's sort of there and it's part of who I am, but it's not sort of the whole thing. And I don't approach it in the same way that I approach the rest of my work, let's say. But as she describes what she calls the attitude of the workshop, I find that it seems weird to expect that we would really experience the kind of life that Jesus describes unless we do approach it this way. So what is this workshop sort of attitude? She says, well, it's when we do what needs to be done, not for our own sakes or our own wills. So this is an interesting concept. This implies that in the spiritual life and in cooperating with God, there are just things to do. There is stuff that has to be done. And it's not really or shouldn't be really an issue of do I want to do this or is this, you know, how does this serve me, my own sake, because I'm part of something bigger. Just like when we're at work and they say this job needs to be done and you don't want to do it, but it just has to be done because that's what has to happen. Now at work we have paychecks and so we realize, you know, I'm getting a paycheck to do this work. What, what, how does that translate into our spiritual lives where we approach things as this is the work that I'm doing, these are the things that are just part of it. They just need to be done. And I can take on this sort of workshop or professional type mindset as opposed to the hobbyist mindset. And then the example is a great example. The, the prayer that Jesus taught, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's action. The kingdom, the kingdom coming, certainly that's God doing something. Thy will be done. That's going to happen through us. So, Here's a great quote from Evelyn. It's useless to utter fervent petitions for that kingdom to be established and that will to be done unless we're willing to do something about it ourselves. And boy, what a wonderful critique of, I don't know, what we might call just sort of typical American Christianity. We can pray, but ultimately, what are we willing to do about it? What are we willing to change? And here's a question. What would a life look like that really was committed to the coming of God's kingdom, that God's will would be done, and, and pursued that will without any conditions, without any reluctance, saw it as, this is just the job that needs to be done, and so we're going to do it. Uh, here's a quote. We are the agents of the creative spirit in this world. Real advance in the spiritual life, then, that's, she's talking now for us as individuals, means accepting this vocation with all that it involves, not merely turning over the pages of an engineering magazine and enjoying the pictures, but putting on overalls and getting on with the job. Again, this is her kind of saying, what is the mindset of the spiritual life that gets us into and and helps us participate in this cooperation with God? This is the kind of mindset that's required. Um, Now, that immediately leads into the importance of our just ordinary everyday life because all of us have stuff. There's always stuff happening. We're busy and we just have things to do. And some of them may be amazing. A lot of them are probably fairly homely and boring. So how within the context of our fairly mundane limitations of daily life, how can we cooperate with this thing that seems so great and so huge, the will of God? Well, 
It's one thing to have sort of a general spiritual outlook, but as we all know, to make our everyday actions harmonize or become part of that spiritual outlook is the work. It's one thing to say, I believe that God is in the, you know, here. I believe that God's spirit is with me. I believe that everything I do matters. Um, but it's another thing to then go and do the dishes or take out the garbage or, you know, take care of other people or just do whatever needs to be done with this same kind of mindset. We are now engaging ourselves in trying to see things, to see people, and to see even the, the simplest choices we make from the angle of eternity. So we have to have this much bigger perspective. Um, we, I have a friend who calls this, you know, the eternal perspective. You get to a certain point when you can sort of glimpse eternity in the future, and you can glimpse where you've come from, and you see a bit of the bigger picture. Another author and speaker I like is Dallas Willard, and he loved this phrase. He said it all the time. He would say to his, his listeners, you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And his whole point was to get people into this bigger picture. C.S. Lewis described it, as many of us have heard the quote, when he said, none of us has met, ever met a mere mortal. In other words, all of us are going on to something beyond this. So this obviously affects everything about our lives. As soon as we engage something in this way, it changes it. It makes it, it imbues it with meaning. And so then all of our choices really begin to matter a lot more. What I watch, what I read, what I listen to, the things I support, um, the things I give my voice to, my time, my money, even, you know, our whole political conversation, which is so heated right now, so much of it is grounded in, you know, personal, um, what I want for my own sake. How do we get out of that mindset and all we do and think, I'm, this has got to be bigger than me? So we can do that by recognizing that we tend to have an overemphasized sense of self-importance. At the same time, we can do it with a very realistic um, view that I really do have a limited influence, but a, a real influence over uh, this small patch of the world that has been mine to influence. Just because, just by nature of being a human being, and humans have a role to play in the world, every person has this sense of importance. But we just tend to aggrandize it. We just tend to, you know, need to make ourselves bigger and bigger and bigger. Part of this eternalist perspective is recognizing, gosh, this is bigger than me. And yet part of it is saying, but my little patch of grass here is my patch of grass, and I will be asked to account for it. So that means we, we have to avoid, as Evelyn calls it, living with blinders on. We have to acknowledge the reality that the world is, is broken. The world... <laughs> And not that I think many of us are denying this, but we, as soon as we acknowledge it, we, we recognize, gosh, I have this little patch. I'm, I might not be responsible for, you know, these massive things. Maybe I am. Maybe God's calling me to, you know, be super involved in some huge big picture and make a, a massive change. But I bet that for a lot of us, we're called to live in and to affect this sphere that we have been given. And it might not seem very big. But that sphere is where we learn to say, so let me read another quote here. I'm going to read a lot of quotes. 
think I already mentioned that. So to say day by day, thy kingdom come, if these tremendous words really stand for a conviction and a desire, it doesn't mean, quote, I quite hope that someday the kingdom of God will be established and peace and goodwill will prevail, but at present I don't see how it's to be managed or what I can do about it. On the contrary, it means, or it should mean, here am I, send me. It means active, costly collaboration with the Spirit in whom we believe. And obviously there she's quoting Isaiah's experience with God. So if you go to Isaiah, I think it's, you know, chapter 6 or something, he has a vision, he has an experience of God. And so she lays this out as a pattern for the spiritual life, and I want to describe it real quick. First, a vision, what we might call the eternal perspective, the divine splendor. Isaiah sees God and realizes that God is always here. I mean, God is fully present and so big, there's no way God could not be present in the world, and it's revealed to Isaiah. And immediately Isaiah's reaction is a sense of his own inadequacy, his own penitence, his own need for, you know, for purification. So God does that, but then immediately God asks Isaiah for his services, limited as they are, and inadequate as they are, God wants Isaiah to cooperate. And what's crazy is the action that God asks people to, to do seems like it can be almost anything. And here's what Underhill has to say about it. She says, not where the, the prospects are good, but where the need is great. Not to the suitable job, but to the difficult thing. Not to give the, or, or, or to give the unpopular message in the uncongenial place. She's describing there the lives of a lot of the people that we read about in scriptures who are asked to do things they weren't suited for, like Moses, um, things they weren't good at, things to go places they initially didn't want to go, to say things they didn't want to say, and to generally just look unimpressive. I'm thinking of Paul saying, you know, there are all those other super apostles, but I chose not to do my ministry that way. So these examples, we have these saints who go by these strange paths, these unexpected ways, but they have great courage, great initiative, um, what she calls hardy endurance. In other words, they stick to it, what we might call grit. They have a calm acceptance of the fact that they're just going to be unpopular, that maybe what they do is just not going to be received well in their own lifetimes. They're willing to be misunderstood. They're even willing to accept contempt. And, and this might be the most challenging one for me as I think about it, their own inner and spiritual lives were often hard and painful. In other words, it wasn't just that their outer lives, the actions they were doing were difficult, and yet they were filled inwardly with all just spiritual delights all the time. Instead, they actually had difficult inner journeys as well. But willingly and perpetually, she says, they prayed from within the cross, they shared in the agony, the darkness, the loneliness of the cross, and because of this, they shared in its saving power. I think this is extremely powerful um, to consider for ourselves, how easily we are lured into thinking, I want to do the successful thing, I want to do the thing that other people are going to receive well or that's going to look good, I want to do the thing that uh, is going to give me a sense of satisfaction because it has the greatest effect. And yet, 
Oftentimes, the things that are really waiting to be done that God is asking people to do are the unpopular things um, and the things that really won't look very great in anybody's sight. So let's talk about the church for a second. Evelyn goes on to now discuss how to think about the role of the church. As we've been talking, I've been thinking more individualistically. As we talk about the church now, let's think communally. The church is, as she says, in the world to save the world. It's a tool of God for that purpose. Now, however the church looks and whatever it does in the future, you know, I don't know. Um, But it's going to be there because God has decided it will be there. As long as, and I'm sure the church will go through seasons, and maybe we're doing this right now, of, of refinement. But as long as the church sees itself not as simply receivers, but as transmitters. In other words, receivers and givers. She even uses the phrase, we must be committed to contemplation. That is this communion with God and action, cooperation with God. Again, she says, We are far from realizing all that humans can do for one another on spiritual levels if they will pay the price. How truly and really our souls interpenetrate and how impossible and unchristian it is to, quote, keep ourselves to ourselves. So she's playing off of this idea that in community, we we have such an amazing potential to help one another. And then that, that sense of unity and oneness as we, as we build one another up in love, as it says in Ephesians 4, we are able to then not only accomplish things for one another, but then accomplish greater things for the world. But the reality is that loving one another requires paying a certain price. She quotes, um, I think, a 17th century French, 17th century French monk who says, you will never do much for people except by suffering for them. Oof. That, um, <laughs> that really, I think, brings a bit of reality to this conversation about cooperation with God. I appreciate the language that helps, it, helps us see how beautiful and how wonderful and how glorious it is to be a part of what God is doing. But this is the reality. The reality is the suffering Jesus suffered uh, as a human to show us part of what life with God is like. But, of course, we know that wasn't the end of the story. So when we look at the saints again, when we look at them as love in, in action, their lives were full of love, but they were never far from pain, and their lives were generally seen by themselves as an offering to God, so that they were willing to go through these challenges, these sufferings, these difficulties. Sometimes just, you know, even just being thought of as weird. (laughs) There were, I think, St. Francis, I think about him, you know, walking out of town naked and going out and living in the mountains. I'm sure he was aware that people thought he was weird. Evelyn says, real intercession is a form of sacrifice. And intercession, remember, is We're connecting with God on behalf of other people. It's always a form of sacrifice. And sacrifice always costs something, always means suffering, even though the most deeply satisfying joy of which we are capable is mingled with its pain. 
And how true is that statement? Sometimes our moments of greatest, greatest joy, the greatest things we could experience are also the moments where we are suffering the most often with others. In summary, this idea of a community of Christ followers of a church must follow Christ. And as we know, Christ said, follow me means pick up your cross. We have to love through dying. And that just means dying to ourselves. And ultimately, through our dying, a different, an entirely different quality and source of life can spring from the ashes. To wrap up, I'd like to discuss what she calls the marks, the qualities, and the virtues that are produced by the Spirit in our action with God. In other words, how do we recognize when we're doing stuff that we're doing stuff with God? How can we know? Wouldn't that be nice? I think that's one of the great questions. It's like, well, I'm, I'm doing my best. I, uh, I, you know, I tried to do the right thing. I think God was in it. Um, but she now quotes St. John of the Cross, another mystic from centuries past. And he has three, um, three adjectives that he uses to describe what the action with God really looks like. First, tranquility or peacefulness. Second, gentleness. And third, strength. Now, rather than get into a long discussion of what we think tranquility, gentleness, and strength are, um, I'll follow Evelyn's lead and just give some things that contrast those things. She, she uses the words fuss and feverishness. So, in other words, if our action is full of fuss and feverishness, it's probably not too uh, cooperative with God. She says anxiety. If we're doing things anxiously, it's probably not much cooperation with God going on. She uses the word intensity, and, you know, I think there are healthy forms of intensity, but we can all probably imagine an unhealthy kind of intensity. Intolerance. If we're acting with intolerance for others. Instability. In other words, sort of the hot and cold, on-off, not, not very constant, not stable. Pessimism and wobble. <laughs> she uses that phrase. Pessimism and wobble. Pessimism, obviously, is the idea that it's never going to work, sort of a hopelessness. And wobble may, maybe being another kind of instability. And then finally, she mentions hurry and worry, um, which are big ones, maybe the biggest ones for me. It's so easy to get in a hurry mode, and it's so easy for that hurry to be motivated by some kind of a worry. So, a simple test. Am I cooperating with God? Consider your, your tranquility, your gentleness, and your strength as you act. Rather than the, quote, fervor or strength of your religious feelings. <laughs> now this, I love this quote. We're not defining our connection or cooperation with God, our action with God, based on how many uh, how strong our religious feelings are, how many good, good feels we're having. We're basing it on, am I peaceful? Am I able to act with gentleness or meekness? And I, am I able to act with a, this kind of gentle attitude, but in strength? So listen to this. The saints, she says, know that these small and changing lives of ours, about which we're so often troubled, are a part of a greater mystery. 
the life that is revealed or that is related to God and known by God. They know that they and all the other souls they love so much have their abiding place in eternity. And there, the meaning of everything which they do and they bear is understood. So all their action comes from this center. And whether it's small or great, heroic or very homely, doesn't matter to them much. It is a tranquil expression of obedience and devotedness. And I would say devotion is one of my new old favorite words. <laughs> it's a word that I had left behind a long time ago when people referred to quiet times as devotions and books about quiet times as devotionals. I didn't really relate to that. But as I've come back to this idea of devotion, I realize there are so many things I can be devoted to. And if I can think about what I'm really being devoted to as I'm doing all the things I'm doing, I might discover something. I might discover that what I really need to devote myself to requires detaching from my own need for self-importance. In other words, a lot of the things I do I'm devoted because they're serving me in some way to make me feel important. And if I can detach from that need, I can devote myself to something that is greater. I can detach myself also from this idea of the expected outcomes, because again, as Evelyn says, where, where God is in eternity, the meaning of everything which I do and bear is ultimately understood, even if I don't understand it now. I don't need to be somebody or prove something about myself now. All that, all that self-importance and expected outcomes and all that needing to be somebody and prove something, that has to reduce if I want my cooperation with God to increase. If I don't, what I do is I run the risk of doing great-looking things, things that people will applaud me for and pat me on the back for and, you know, be impressed by, but that really have no eternal effect. They have no home in eternity, no connection with reality, because they're actually just grounded in my own non-reality. And I go back now to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we talked about at the end of, I think it was episode two. Also, regarding this eternal perspective, the action, she says, of those whose lives are given to the Spirit has in it something of the leisure of eternity. That's such an interesting phrase, the leisure of eternity. There's some kind of a rest that we can step into when we see from this eternal perspective and that our actions then take, um, take an appropriate place within that eternal perspective. And we move with a, a certain le leisure. And she says, because of this, those people who are acting with this leisure of eternity, they actually achieve far more than those whose lives are enslaved by the rush and hurry, by the unceasing tick-tick of the world. In the spiritual life, it's very important to get our timing right. Otherwise, she says, we tend to forget that God, who is greater than our heart, is greater than our job, too. How easy is that to forget? We'll quote scriptures all the time and sing songs about how great God is, and yet we really ultimately often think that God isn't big enough to help us with our job. And this is so, so difficult, especially for some of us who are addicted to hurry and living in a culture like we do that values productivity so highly. I would guess, and this is just a, a conjecture here, 
I would guess that there were times when Jesus moved quickly. But for three years, remember, he didn't have a job. At least, you know, he didn't work for money. And he relied on generous donors to make his life possible. And if you read the Gospels, you see that he just kind of went wherever the situation demanded. And sometimes he would linger, and sometimes he would move on, and sometimes he would sort of go in what seemed to be a, a different uh, and maybe spontaneous direction. I wonder if some people thought him irresponsible or even lazy. But I think there's something in looking at the life of Jesus and, and other saints to say they've got some perspective of their life, of their action, that lends to it a kind of leisure. And yet it's not an unproductive leisure. It's the most productive thing that they could possibly do because they're doing the thing that they're doing, or they're doing the thing that really needs to be done. So I'm going to wrap up here with a quote. It's a little over a page, so hang with me for a second. This is how Evelyn finishes this chapter. We've considered that cooperation with God, or cooperation with the Spirit's action, which is to balance our communion with God as a giving of ourselves to God's service, doing some of His work in the world. But there is another and a deeper side. The hidden action of each soul called by God, the effort and struggle of the interior life, what we have to do in response to the love which is drawing us out of darkness into his great light. Even that mysterious communion with God in which we seek and offer ourselves to, that which we love in spite of the deep peace it brings, is not without pain and tension which must be felt by imperfect human creatures when they contemplate and stretch towards a beauty and perfection which they cannot reach. Still more, when it comes to the deeper action, the more entire self-giving, the secret transformation to which that vision of perfection is calling us, and that sacrifice, struggle, and effort, which sooner or later this transformation must involve, the perfection at which the awakened soul gazes is a magnet drawing us towards itself. It means effort, faithfulness, courage, and sometimes grim encounters if we're to respond to that attraction and move toward it along the narrow track which leads up and out from the dark valleys of the mind. So she's saying here that we have this cooperation going on in multiple levels. We're cooperating with God works and God's work in the world. We're also cooperating with God's work in our own souls. And that work, as much as we would love to say it's all roses, that may be some of the hardest work. And I would just say from my own experience and thinking about how we do this together, I strongly encourage you not to think of this as an individualistic undertaking. I think that this kind of work which we do is only work that can be done, whether we're talking about the active outer service-oriented work to the world, or we're talking about our own inner work in our soul with God. This is work that has to be done in partnerships with others. We just can't do it on our own, partly because it's designed that way. There is literally work that needs to be done that we cannot do alone. And also because we are not strong enough to do it on our own. It's too daunting. The road is too difficult. And while I can set my sights and I can set my intention, 
There will be seasons, sometimes long seasons, when the only way I'm going to stay on this path is with a friend. So that is why we have groups. That's why we have community. That's why we have our online uh, community. And that's why we try to spend some time together as well. So I hope you can continue making this an effort. And I would encourage you, as invitations come along, to go ahead and take those opportunities, um, to take those new steps in vulnerability and relationship with other people as we seek to figure out what do our lives look like in cooperation with God. We had a great monthly meeting a couple weeks ago, and I'm already looking forward to the next one. So thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging in there. I hope you're enjoying this. I'm super excited for the next talk. I believe the next one I'm going to do is on her final chapter, which, if I get the title right, I think she just calls Some Questions and Difficulties. (laughs) So this is going to be a catch-all episode next time that's going to just deal with some of the common questions and difficulties, and I'm super excited to bring them up because I think they're all uh, very, very pertinent to what we are all experiencing today. All right. Thanks for being here, and we'll catch you next time.